Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The terrible situation that continues to develop in Israel with uh, the terrorist group Hamas assaulting and committing atrocities. I don't understand people in this country who are cheering on Hamas. That is taking place. We know that. I think that it's. I think it's illegal to do so in this country of ours, to cheer on a terrorist organization. I keep that in mind. A Canadian is missing, Ben Mizrachi from British Columbia, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, confirmed this morning. And uh, we hope that he's okay, that he's well. Over 600 people are dead in Israel now after the uh, Hamas attack. Carolyn Glick is a senior contributing editor of the Jewish News Syndicate and host of the Carolyn Glick Show on JNS. She's also the diplomatic commentator for Israel's Channel 14, as well as a columnist for Newsweek. And uh, Ms. Glick joins us from uh, Efrat, a suburb of Jerusalem. Carolyn, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. I watched your YouTube presentation this morning. And you woke up to the attack by Hamas. Please tell our listeners across this country what the first hours were like. Well, um, our our family is, is is Orthodox, so we don't generally turn on the uh, news uh, on on holidays like and on Shabbat on the Sabbath. But uh, I started hearing the air raid sirens from neighboring communities at around seven thirty, and uh, then the booms of the missiles falling, <clears throat> and then about. Uh, Fifteen minutes later, uh, we got our first of two missile attacks uh, on our community on Saturday morning. So we went online to find out what was going on, and we discovered that we had been invaded in the south. Um, and it later transpired that uh, Hamas was able to carry out uh, a surprise attack um, and massacred hundreds and hundreds of Israelis, uh, civilians and soldiers, uh, in uh, 15 different communities in the south, as well as uh, uh, temporarily, at least, uh, um, were able to seize control over two Israeli military bases, and they massacred everybody there as well. Um, and uh, they took back uh, uh, many uh, scores of Israeli citizens, uh, soldiers, um, and civilians, uh, including women and children, and elderly uh, to Gaza. Uh, the women have been subjected to uh, brutal rape and murder and the children to abuse. Um, and they're also being shown used as uh, human shields and IDF uh, uh, aerial bombings of, uh, of Hamas um, headquarters and being executed. Um, 
And uh, we've never seen anything like this before yesterday. Uh, right now, the bed uh, are up to over 700, and uh, we have 2,000 wounded and apparently 180 who have been uh, are being held hostage in in Gaza. Um, so we've we've never seen anything like this before. Um, it's not at all clear how they were able to disable Israel's defenses along the border fence. We have one of the most sophisticated. Uh, border uh, defense systems in the world, if not the most sophisticated, and yet all of the layers of defense uh, were neutralized. So that's um, something that's something that uh, that needs to be talked about. First of all, how are you personally? Well, I'm a little bit tired, but that's fine. I'm lucky I get a chance to uh, uh, defend my country and the media uh, most of the day, so I've been running around to television studios, but... Uh, it's very uh, disconcerting what's happening here. Yeah, um, for sure. The the bloodshed is just uh, it's it, you. You actually don't want to stop and think about it because it tears you apart. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, it's emotionally extremely trying. And you know our kids are home from school because they close schools, and we have to worry about them and their and, mental and health explain it to them and, tr- well. and try to explain it to them. Right in ways that they won't panic and yet we'll understand the gravity of the hour mm-hmm. and why it's so important that uh, our neighbors and our cousins and and an older brother are getting emergency call-ups to uh, to uh, reserve duty um, in the IDF and are, are heading towards Gaza. So is there, is there, is there uh, still is there still time. are there still gun battles going on? Yes. Uh, apparently, they're still going on in three different points in Israel, um, and, and uh, that haven't been completely uh, cleaned out yet. The IDF was caught flat-footed. Um, I still don't quite understand. Nobody does. I mean, I'm sure that some people do, but uh, they have higher uh, <clears throat> they have higher security clearances, I guess, than the normal Joe on the street in Israel. Um, they they may have more information, but it's. Uh, it's unclear. It, it, it would seem that it was a combination of uh, of an operational uh, fiasco in terms of expectations of the IDF and understanding of intelligence or not understanding, and some sort of a cyber attack on Israel. Uh, you so said that you said that two. We need that. You, you said that two military bases were overrun. What's that? You said two military bases had been overrun. They were overrun, and, and now they're they're fine. Right. Now, uh, my my sons are a little bit panicked now because they said that they hear shooting outside. So, uh, how I close how close to you is that shooting? I don't know. I didn't hear it. My son just came in okay. in the middle of the interview. I'm, the kids are a little bit jumpy, so sure. I'm not real sure uh, yeah. that it's happened. But uh, that's that's the kind of thing that we're dealing with here. You know, anyway. Yeah, when I was watching your um, your, mm-hmm. your your presentation on YouTube this morning, mm-hmm. um, you you had concerns, and I spoke with the uh, incoming ambassador from Israel to Canada about this yesterday. You have Hezbollah mm-hmm. to the north in Lebanon, mm-hmm. and they're congratulating Hamas. And so now you have Hamas, the potential of Hezbollah becoming engaged, and Israel fought a war with Hezbollah not long ago. And they're operating, from what we understand, another guest told us yesterday quite clearly, she's Iranian, she's a journalist and uh, an activist, operating with Iran's funding. So is there expectation 
fear, I understand, but is there expectation that Hezbollah will engage now, engage the IDF, engage Israel along with Hamas? Yes. Uh, um, you know, they already shot mortars across the border uh, this morning into the Golan Heights. Um, and uh, and uh, so, and they've been probing Israel's border for the past month and a half from Lebanon. Um, the head of Hamas, uh, Salah Haruri, uh, met with Hezbollah chief uh, Hassan Nasrallah. Uh, all of this is being directed by Iran. I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, Elon Musk uh, just uh, deleted a tweet by Iranian dictator Ali Khamenei, which showed footage of uh, of Hamas terrorists. Uh, shooting down, massacring, and seizing prisoners uh, from uh, a rave party, a rave party that took place in the desert outside of uh, outside of Gaza on Saturday morning, and uh, apparently uh, 200 people were massacred at the rave. There were, I think, a couple thousand kids there. Yeah, I and saw that. So about 200 were killed, and at least uh, um, several dozen were taken. Uh, prisoner, particularly the girls who are very pretty. It uh, must be, I mean, you're a journalist, so you ask a mm-hmm. lot of questions. That's your job. That's what we do. As journalists, mm-hmm. we ask questions. And the question that I hear you saying, and heard you reference a little while ago, was people want to know, Israel will want to know, Israelis want to know, how Hamas was able to overrun Israel's vaunted defenses against intrusion and attack. And that's going to be the most fundamental question that's going to be asked after it's uh, when the decision's been taken to to go to war with Hamas. And the prime minister of Israel, Netanyahu, has said um, they're in for the kind of um, assault they've never experienced before. And I expect that from a prime minister at that particular time. But that's the question, isn't it? How were they able to do it? Um, you know, it's a, it's an important question operationally going forward because we have to understand their capabilities. We have to understand which uh, outside powers are providing them with that cyber capability. If, in fact, it was a cyber assault, uh, and uh, it's hard for me to um, shake the, the the suspicion that it certainly was at least in part. Uh, was it China that just signed a strategic uh, alliance with uh with Iran, were they involved? Was it just an Iranian operation? Um, who who was penetrating? And and it's and it's an important question again, not even from a, a perspective of uh, settling scores at all. It's uh, we have to understand what the capabilities of the enemies are because we're about to launch uh, ground forces into Gaza. Um, and uh, so we have to see. We've called up hundreds of thousands of reservists, and some of them, of course, have to go to the north because of the uh, very, very high potential that this will become a two-front war with uh, mm-hmm. Iran's Lebanese uh, Hezbollah proxy. Is there is there concern? Is there concern, Carolyn, about other states mm-hmm. in the region engaging now? Is there a sense that they might see opportunity or sense an opportunity to defeat Israel? I'm, I'm, my my assumption is the United States and the Western countries would not allow that to happen. But is there a fear that they're more concerned that there might be some of the other regional states may get engaged? Um, well, there were some Israelis killed in Egypt, but uh, I, I, today, but that was a terrorist attack. It wasn't carried out by the Egyptian regime. Um, I think that um, and and Jordan Jordan's king is very. Um, 
sympathetically inclined and has been for quite some time towards uh, Hamas because the Muslim Brotherhood is such a strong uh, presence in Jordan and Hamas is a Muslim Brotherhood organization. Um, so we we have that, but I think it's all a question of putting your finger to the wind and seeing which direction it's blowing. So a lot of this, including, um, well, really everything is on the line because if Israel doesn't strike a fatal blow against Hamas and, and presumably Hezbollah as well, if they get involved or if they remain involved, uh, <clears throat> then we're going to uh, then then we're going to see the collapse of Israel's regional status, uh, and and it would cause a grave harm to our peace accords. Uh, the Abraham Accords are probably our relations with uh, Egypt and Jordan. And it would uh, probably prevent Israel and Saudi Arabia from normalizing ties. And, of course, it would guarantee Iran's rise as a regional hegemon. Mm-hmm. So it would, it, would, it, would, uh, it would really be a disaster. Everything really is on the line here. And it was put on the line here again <clears throat> in an act of complete surprise and, uh, and perniciousness by, uh, by Hamas. Caroline, uh, what about Jerusalem, and what about your your area, just outside Jerusalem, Ephrat? And you were just telling us a few minutes ago that your son had concerns because he'd heard gunfire while we were talking. Yeah, uh, well, my husband said that uh, he, it, it, it uh, was uh, it, it was not so, which is good. And you know, I mean, it just goes with the territory, right? Yeah. I mean, it is uh, you, you hear things that you fear. So, yeah. Um, how di- and, uh, how different life how different life is than it was forty eight hours ago. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it's a life just you know it just it just turns on a dime. It and does. That's exactly what just happened. We you know we were we were so happy we spent <laughs> we spent last week. It was the Sukkot holiday, and we went up to the Golan Heights and. We were hiking and seeing the, you know, Israel's, what they call Israel's Toscana. It's just this beautiful area of the country right along the borders with Lebanon and Syria. And uh, amazing hikes, waterfalls. And then down below you have the Sea of Galilee, which we actually went went boating on, which was a special treat. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're back here and we got back uh, on Friday afternoon. And uh, Saturday morning, the, the entire world just turned upside down. Yeah. How's Jerusalem? And, uh, just, well, Jerusalem is—they um, also got a lot of—they uh, also got a lot of, um, of, of missile attacks on Saturday, but it—but it, uh, everything was intercepted and no damage was caused. But it's—it's uh, it, it's a trying time because we don't know. We've had <clears throat> violence from uh, from Arab Jerusalemites that were. Uh, um, attacking uh, their Jewish neighbors and in some of the neighborhoods in northern and in uh, eastern Jerusalem. Uh, yesterday uh, night, I think the reports were, but it's um, it's still scattered uh, violence. And one of the big fears that we've had is really that um, you know in 2021. Hamas, uh, we had our last round of fighting with Hamas, and the main thrust of that fighting weren't, it wasn't even the missiles that they were shooting into Israel from from Gaza, but they shot in, I think, 5,000 in, in 
in uh, I remember it was about a week and a half or two weeks. Yesterday it was 3,500 in one day, just to get a sense of the volume. But um, we we also had in 2021 the most important thing was the involvement of Arab Israeli citizens in the assaults so that they carried out acts of rioting and mass violence, mob violence against Jews, against Jewish businesses, Jewish vehicles, Jewish homes, uh, synagogues, schools, uh, in mixed Arab Jewish cities in Israel. And uh, so uh, yesterday morning... When, uh, Carolina, I apologize. I do have to stop you because, sir, we have okay. just we have just run out of time. But thank you so much for joining us uh, from uh, Israel, from uh, your community of Efrat, a suburb of Jerusalem. We'll stay in touch with you. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. And, and can I just give one last sentence? Or um, I just want to say that you know we we suffered a horrible losses yesterday right. and still today, but I I think that we're some of the bravest, most courageous people on the face of the planet. Be safe. I have no doubt that we will win. Be safe, Carolyn. I wanted to talk to this guest for quite some time. I'm glad I can. Let me preface it by saying that teachers across this country, Canada, are experiencing violence and harassment from students. The elementary, got it? Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, those are the little kids, report 70% of ETFO members, those be the teachers, have personally experienced or witnessed violence against staff members. We're talking about little kids. So let's talk to Britain's strictest headmistress about how students must behave in her school or face the consequences. Also, how at her inner-city London school, the emphasis is on the three R's. Imagine that. The approach is yielding great success, although not without its critics. Catherine Burbel Singh is the headmistress of the Michaela Community School in Wembley, London, in the UK, of course. And she spent some years of her youth in the Toronto area attending school. So, the strictest headmistress, I don't think you and I would have gotten along very well. Oh, no. No. We would definitely have got along because I would have made you behave. I I mean, people say this to me all the time, oh, I would have got chucked out of your school. But um, they don't realize that they would have been different people in a different environment at school. So, people imagine that strict means kids are sort of allowed to do what they like and the bad kids just get punished all the time. But you see, the bad kids change in an environment that has high expectations of you. Mm -hmm. Um, All children change for the better in that kind of place. I mean, I think people imagine that I'm super strict, so I'm marching up and down the corridors with whips and chains. That's not the case. In fact, I'm barely, I'm in my office most of the time, meeting with teachers and having various meetings. I mean, what it is, what strict is, is a consistent approach across the whole school with all of the teachers where behavior systems are so aligned and the expectations of the children are so aligned that the children simply don't misbehave in the first place. So 
I mean, look, it, it's hard to believe, but all of your listeners are welcome to visit us. We get 800 visitors every year. And I have to say from across the world, there have been many Canadians who come to see us. Um, and they're always a bit kind of shocked. They say, how is it that the children are all putting their hands up to answer questions? How is it that they're not all fidgeting and they're not looking around? And, and how is it the guests come into the room and they're not distracted? It's because children will reach the standards that you set for them. So you should just set them really high. It's just that most people, their standards are far too low for children, and so children don't really make much of an effort. Yeah, we would have gotten along just fine, you and I. <laughs> we would. <laughs> just and fine. you would have been really pleased with yourself. So that's what I'd say. When our kids talk to the guests, the guests always say to me that what the kids say is the first two or three months, it's hard. They have to get used to it. They, they, you know, the idea of detentions and you have to learn how to sit still and to, to track the teacher. We talk about tracking the teacher and to concentrate. Sometimes I see children, especially any that, that join us uh, mid-year from another school, they might even be in tears saying that um, they've never had to concentrate so hard, never had to learn so much in their lives. But eventually they adapt and then... They see the difference between themselves and their friends at other schools. And they see that their friends at other schools are disorganized, are late, are, are look like a mess, don't know very much, um, are unable to think in, in, in interesting ideas about the world because their brains are not filled with knowledge in the way that our kids are. So, you know, like our kids then feel really lucky and think, oh, thank goodness I'm at Michaela because I'm learning so much and I'm a much better version of myself here than I was elsewhere before I came here. Preparation and, for life. Preparation for life, isn't it? Exactly. So it's not just the, you know, when things start unraveling, and I have to say in Canada, I mean, I, you know, I, I was there until the age of 15. You know, my parents are still there. I go to Toronto twice a year. My sister and her family are there. My best friend from the age of six, um, we were in grade one together. Uh, she and I, you know, are constantly in touch. And um, this is all in Toronto. And her sister is a teacher, actually. And um, honestly, I, I think Canada is in a worse position than we are in the UK. So let me I just ask you this then. Let me, let me get you to respond to this. What's your reaction to the news of Canadian teachers' federations declaring large numbers of teachers, talking about little kids now, right? Elementary. Large numbers of teachers, 77% have been subjected to violence and harassment by their students. Yeah. How, how well, do you I react mean, to that? What I just said, things are worse for you. Uh, I mean, we get some of that here, but most of it is at high school level. Mm -hmm. Um if you've got that happening at elementary level, you have your schools are on fire. And the thing is, is that your government and your your your, your the world of education in Canada doesn't recognize any of this. And um, Canada is very woke, you know. So when I go to Toronto and I and I turn on the radio. I have to turn it off because it's just so horrifying. I just can't bear listening to it. Um, and so all of these woke ideas. So woke isn't just, I mean, it includes, but it isn't just, you know, uh, putting black boxes up on Instagram and being supportive of BLM and all of the more modern stuff around LGBTQ and so on. I'm not, it, it is that, but it's also what it's been for the last several decades, which is, allowing children to lead the learning in the classroom and to lead the culture in your school. And people didn't think it was a big deal in the 80s and the 90s when they allowed that to happen. So instead of desks, so desks in our school 
are in rows and um, the, the teacher at the front of the class is leading the learning and is in charge, is the authority in the classroom. Whereas uh, for, for decades now, it's been the case in many schools that the desks are in groups and the children are looking at each other. And that is what's called child-centered learning. And it's the children who lead the learning and the teacher who moves amongst the desks as a facilitator of learning, just trying to keep the kids on task. Now, it was that move towards children leading things that has now created, this is, we've just, we're at the other end now where there is total chaos in the schools, where there's violence against teachers. There's also obviously violence amongst the, the, the pupils. The, um, the, the teachers are not in authority anymore. There's no more respect for them. And I would argue that it's the same thing in families, that parents are trying to be friends with their kids instead of leading them and holding them to account. We teachers and parents should be holding the line. When children say, I want to just, you know, play video games or I want to be on my phone. First of all, you shouldn't give your kid a phone. I mean, Bill Gates didn't give his children data until they were 16. But Steve Jobs, when interviewed in 2010 about the iPad and asked about his children using the iPad, he said, of course, I'm not giving my children the iPad. That would be insane. And um, the guys, the big fat cats in California are making billions off of our stupidity. They, they protect their own children from this technology. They send them to the most traditional school in um, Silicon Valley where they're using pen and paper and so on. Meanwhile, we all are sending our children to schools with iPads to move from classroom to classroom, giving them phones. The children are totally uh, no longer connected with reality. They sit at break time and at lunchtime on their phones like zombies. They're not playing. They're not interacting. They're not being socialized. Now, all of this is happening. Meanwhile, the children are then leading everything. They are totally influenced by social media. So it's like a combination of, of the, the so-called modernity of, of, you know, of tech and all of that combined with us just having relaxed our, our jobs as adults. So you know, the thing is, we should be in charge. We are the ones who owe these children. It is our duty to be in charge and to lead the way. And, but people th think of it as mean. You know, if you type into Google, uh, who is the strictest teacher in the world, my name comes up. And of course, people think that means I'm mean. It doesn't mean I'm mean. It means I love children. It means I love them enough to do what's right by them. And unfortunately, there are too many adults, both teachers and parents, who won't do what's right by children. They would rather take the easy road out and just be friends with the kids because in that moment, it's quite hard to give the detention. It's quite hard to say to your child, no, sit down and read a book instead of just playing on your video games. It's hard to hold the line. And so we take the easy way out and in the end, we let children down. I want to give you a standing ovation of one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's why your children, your teachers are being beaten up. I mean, and people then say, oh, my goodness, it must be a mental health crisis. It must be special needs. It's none of that. It's the fact that we have lost control as adults and we are the ones who are at fault here. And then, well, the mental health crisis is real. But the, the reality is that these children are being made mentally ill by all of their their time on social media. I, I would suggest all of your listeners. Take your, if you've given your child a phone, so if you haven't given your child a phone, hooray, you're a great parent. If you have given your child a smartphone, I would suggest you take the phone without telling them at the end of an evening and take a look at how much time they've spent on that phone that day. Look at their screen time, right? Look at how much time because you're going to be shocked. Okay. And, um, and then without them knowing, go on the history. 
and look at the websites that they're going on. Mm-hmm. You know, find me the 14-year-old boy who has a phone and has unsupervised access to the internet, and you will find me a boy who regularly goes on porn. It isn't, you know, it used to be the case that the pornography was just in magazines and it was at the top shelf behind some wooden barrier or whatever in the 1980s. Nowadays, it's not just magazines. The children have direct access to pornography in video form on their phones and parents don't think to themselves, gosh, actually, I wouldn't want them to have You know, you know what you're just telling me is is, is fascinating and I, I don't, I won't, dis- I can't dispute it. I don't want to dispute it. But it reminds me of a conversation I had a number of years ago about bullying. And a principal of a school in Canada was very concerned about bullying. And he said, Roy, it's not the traditional bullying where it took place in school and then when the, the student went home, they were safe from the bullies. Now they have phones. Now they have access to social media and they can bully all day, all night long. And then we wonder why there is a mental health crisis. And then you're, and you're, so this is what you're telling me is an extension of what I heard that day. Now, what are the parents of your students? Because you're not living in a, you're not, your school isn't a very um, uh, um, uh, wealthy area of London, right? Yeah. So how, no, how, it's in the inner city. So all those films that you see, you know, about inner city schools with all the, the troubles that inner city kids have, right. that's our school. You know, uh, kids who might get, you know, murdered down the road by some gang, uh, kids who might join a gang, kids who are involved in criminal activity, uh, knife carrying and all of that. That is the sort of thing. That so that's what they're school. exposed to outside the school. Yes. But when they're in the school... Um, and plus, you know, we're very keen on obviously trying to help them when they're outside the school. So we right. get, get them on the buses right away to go home straight away after school. All of my staff are outside at the end of the day, making sure the children are safe because they are in genuine danger, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, it's the case that we say to all the families joining. So our high school starts in grade seven and then goes all the way through till they go off to university, etc. And um we, I say to the parents, do not give your child a smartphone. And I'd say about half the parents listen to me and do not give their children a smartphone. And that it's unbelievable how I can anecdotally, I can tell you right now, those phones break your child's brain. They will not do as well in their exams because of that phone. And secondly, it opens them up to not just to pornography, but to real danger. Uh, the kinds of pet predators that are out there who will know where your child lives, know their route to school, know their friends. They know exactly how to groom them. And there are all sorts of mothers out there right now campaigning whose children have been murdered because they gave them unsupervised access to the Internet and they didn't know any better. So I'm not blaming your listeners. I get it. It's a new technology. We don't know. But that's why I'm just shouting and shouting about this so that people can hear me. Anecdotally, I can tell you, I can see the difference. So we have a top set, second set, third set, fourth set that are that are streamed according to ability. So the brightest are in the top, the, you know, the not so bright at the bottom. I see the kids who move sets. There are some kids who move from the fourth set up to the top set and the other way down, round, top set going down to the bottom set. I can tell you for every child without, a da- without exception who moves sets like that, the kids without smartphones are moving up and the kids with smartphones are moving down. Now, I see it. It's just obvious to me that the children who have smartphones are not learning as much. They're not as bright. And they, they, they may start off as bright. 
They start off in grade seven as being at the top, and then they slowly go down because they have got access to their smartphone. Uh, Ms. Burblesing, let me just uh, read you a couple of uh, texts I received. Uh, Howdy, Roy. She rocks. This is <laughs> this is Daryl in uh, in New Brunswick from Calgary. I'll stand up with you, Roy. I think I just fell in love. Oh. And and let's see what else we have here from uh, Alberta. Another one, Roy. I love this lady, and on and on it goes. You've really well, connected with our listeners, and I knew you would. Lots of ordinary people who would prefer the education system to do what I'm saying. You asked about whether or not there are people changing. So yeah. there are. There we get 800 visitors a year from across the world. Right. So ordinary teachers, some head head teachers, principals who come and they change things in their schools, and then they write me letters to say thank you so much. We've made we're copying you in this way and that way, and our schools are better off for it. And what are they copying? Well, they're being more traditional. So the teacher is standing at the front and leading the learning. Their behavior, they just tighten up on behavior. They teach the kids gratitude and kindness and a sense of duty towards other people. When you get a detention, you don't just let yourself down, you let the whole class down. You know, all of those small C conservative ideas uh, will change the culture in your school for the better. And I, I find people come and, and, and do that and they change things. Now, when it comes to more of the establishment, however, that's a different matter. So we have tried to expand. That hasn't necessarily worked. I've, I've, I've come across a lot of stumbling blocks when trying to spread things through a more official channel. But underground, via teachers who just come and visit and on social media and on programs like yours, just trying to spread the word and make makes a real difference. People, ordinary people think, oh my goodness, I'm not crazy. Teachers from around the world write to me and say, thank goodness somebody's saying something. So things are changing, but, but very, very slowly. And it's such a shame. It's because the, the educational establishment is just very left-leaning. And yep. so they find my small C conservative values offensive I, themselves. I have to jump in. I hate to do this, but uh, we have run out of time. I do hope you'll come back on the program, though. Yes. Well, thank you very much please, for having me. Please. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I said it before, and I'm going to say it again. I think we're all getting confused about the cost of food, or at least what's being done about it. We're not confused about the cost because we live it. But heading into the Thanksgiving weekend, the federal industry minister, François-Philippe Champagne, said his drive to lower grocery prices had resulted in discounts, price freezes, and price-matching offers. But... He didn't have any answers to how quickly grocery prices may, in fact, fall. So that might be classified as talking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. In Britain, food prices have marginally declined for the first time in two years as grocery chains compete. 
We're going to talk to our guest about that. We'll also talk to him in, uh, during our interview about the $20 minimum wage, which is going to come to the fast food industry in California. Good thing, bad thing, we'll ask him about it. Our guest is our good friend, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, the head of the Dalhousie University Agri-Food Laboratory and Dalhousie University professor. Happy Thanksgiving, Sylvain. Well, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> it is confusing. It Absolutely. is. It also unconfuses. What's going on? Well, uh, well, first of all, when you politicize the issue of food inflation, a lot of things are said. Uh, some of it is true and some of it is not so true. And so for consumers, uh, it can get confusing, absolutely. Now, we have a government uh, which is not overly popular right now. Uh, I think everyone knows that politics are really driving the agenda right now in Ottawa, especially when it comes to the cost of living issue. And of course, there are two major axes to the cost of living debate. One is shelter. And the other one is food. Yep. And um, uh, Minister Champagne has actually championed the issue of food inflation, which is really interesting because he's not the ag and agri-food minister. He's the minister of innovation, which means really that uh, the PMO, the prime minister's office, really wanted things done, things to happen. And I must admit that Minister Champagne is an action-oriented um Minister, which is probably why last week he said flyers are telling us that our strategy is working. Well, in reality, Roy, prices we're seeing uh, in flyers this week uh, were planned probably about six months ago. So it's it's uh, we have to be careful in terms of how we credit the, the 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 government right now in terms of how things are going. Hence, my having said that's defined as talking out of both sides of your mouth at the same time. That's right. Well, um, I think one of the greatest accomplishments uh, that uh, that the government has actually done in recent weeks is to get the big five in the same room. I don't think I've ever seen. I was actually in the room with them. I've never seen all five CEOs in the same room. So that was good. And frankly, I think the discussion was quite constructive and helpful, even though politics got all of them in the same room. After a while, I think CEOs basically decide to make the meeting worthwhile. Um, last week, of course, uh, days before Thanksgiving, Mr. Champagne laid out a, a roadmap uh, to uh, assure Canadians to have access to lower prices. Over the long term, I actually think the plan made sense. Uh, you know, tackling the um, Competition Act, that's long overdue, creating a data hub to democratize data across. Uh, the industry long overdue, um, in establishing a code of conduct for grocers long overdue, but that those issues don't really help Canadians right now. And frankly, what I saw last week really can't help Canadians who need help right now, unfortunately. You know, I, I looked at a, a tweet of yours uh, at Food Professor. And uh, and you you tweeted carbon pricing. Let's talk about that. 
Carbon pricing is undoubtedly a significant policy in Canada. However, it is imperative that we rigorously assess its effects on the affordability of food for Canadians and the competitiveness of our industries over the long term. Unfortunately, comprehensive analyses in this regard have been lacking, and much of what we've encountered appears to be influenced by biased narratives. So, can I just ask you to address that uh, for us here now? And then I ask myself, after I read your, your, your tweet, I thought, or your ex, or whatever it is now, uh, I, I asked myself, why do we even pay tax on food? Why is it ever taxed? Why? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, first of all, every time you hear an economist say that the carbon tax is either costing uh, us more at the grocery store or not costing us more at the grocery store, that person doesn't know what he or she's talking about because basically there is no research supporting uh, either or. We actually are about to release a report. Uh, We uh, conducted a thorough comprehensive analysis of all of the research that has been uh, conducted around the world on food affordability and the carbon tax, and things are not that simple, first of all. Secondly, um, I mean, there are reports out there stating that food prices are either influenced or not. I think it's that we're asking the based on our research so far, I'm not sure it's the right question to ask ourselves. And I've had discussion with some people in Ottawa about this. I actually do believe we need to look at the industry's competitiveness. Because in retail, a lot of things can impact food prices, starting with us, consumers. Consumers actually influence prices because we represent demand for food products. So it's really hard to correlate retail prices with uh, costs up the food chain like the carbon tax. But when you look at industrial prices, then things get clearer. And this is where we're focusing our work right now. And we are seeing some signs that perhaps, you know, the, the, the food industry's competitiveness is maybe compromised with some of our environmental policies, including carbon taxing. Yeah, the food industry in the UK has been able to lower prices for the first time in two years, but it's very marginal, but it's it's there, and they've done it through competitiveness. But I, I wonder whether the government really understands what it's attempting. So that, is it attempting to lower food prices or attempting to lower public pressure and dissatisfaction? Well, I mean, on Thursday night, it's not the same I, thing necessarily, I, I did right? receive a call from uh, Minister Champagne himself, and uh, you know, we were reflecting on what happened on Thursday. He wanted my comments about uh, what he announced. I did say to him that I was pleased with what I heard for the longer term. For the short term, I didn't see anything that would help Canadians. And the one thing I raised with him was um, were taxes at retail. I mean, Roy, right now, when you walk into a grocery store, there are 4,600 products uh, that are subject to a sales tax, no matter where you go. And I do wonder uh, whether or not it is time uh, in Canada to have a serious conversation. I know a lot of people say, well, we tax unhealthy foods. That's not necessarily true. We tax salads. We tax, we tax 
products that have been shrinkflated so much that are now considered as snacks according to the CRA. We tax, I mean, there's a beautiful, there are some great Canadian-made products, incredibly natural, sustainable, uh, and all of these products are taxed. <laughs> and so I do wonder whether or not we should have a conversation about you know, CRA rules and what should be taxed oh, or yeah. not the grocery store. As far as I'm concerned, if it's not served to consumers, it shouldn't be taxed. Exactly. You know, this is the, this is a weekend in, in the year when people uh, traditionally go and buy a fair amount of food because they serve it to their families, serve it to their friends. They, so they spend a lot of money. I was talking to somebody yesterday who spent Sylvan just for, just for Thanksgiving dinner for the family, 500 bucks. Not hard to do. It's not that somebody said, well, let's go buy the most expensive stuff and as much of it as we can. 500 yeah. bucks doesn't go that far anymore. And, uh, it, I think and a lot of people are having potlucks tonight and tomorrow night. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell oh, you. Oh, yeah. Share the burden. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about an op-ed that you wrote uh, for Retail Insider, Sylvain, about the uh, ongoing debate about raising the minimum wage. And in California, in April of next year, the minimum wage for fast food workers going to $20 from sixteen twenty-one. And you're right, that's a staggering 23% increase. And, and you write also, while this initiative may appear well-intentioned, uh, aimed at enhancing the quality of life for low-wage earners, it is imperative that we critically examine the potential consequences that may arise from such a significant policy shift. It's being talked about in this country along with uh, a living wage. What, what's, what's, your, what's your view of what's going on in California? I think it's indicative of uh, what what is happening uh, across across uh, North America, frankly, around the industrialized world. Uh, everyone wants everyone to earn a, a decent wage uh, in the food industry. Um, a lot of companies want to offer a, a career path for people. Uh, but uh, what needs to be appreciated is that often, uh, the food industry uh, does operate with very low margins. And so you, if you want to pay people $20 an hour at a minimum, it will put pressure on prices. And so my guess with uh, what's going on in California, uh, the fast food uh, industry actually employs well over half a million people. And a few years from now, I actually do think the sector will become more automated. But I do wonder whether or not the state of California, the Golden State, is basically sending a clear message to the fast food industry saying, well, maybe we don't really want you anymore uh, sort of thing because you don't necessarily offer healthy products to people. We want uh, people to follow a different lifestyle. And so often what, what I'm concerned about, Roy, is that you often see states, governments, weaponizing the food industry to serve as some sort of agenda, whether it's related to the environment or health. And uh, and that's really how I'm reading what's all happening right now in California, beyond the fact that you want people to earn a decent living, which I think is hard to dispute. So it's a shell game. Possibly. I think so. I, I think so. So we're going to give you a minimum wage of $20 an hour, but your job's going to be gone. 
My guess in a few years from now, that sector will likely employ less than 300,000. Uh, you'll see even more ATMs, more robots in the kitchen. Um, and then, again, when you actually operate a facility with, uh, with more AI, more automation, you need different skill sets. You'll need different employees. So people currently working in restaurants may not be qualified to do the work that will be required in a few years from now as a result of these changes. So again, I'm not saying that this is something we should avoid, uh, but we need to also be truthful to people about what is actually happening. If you want to earn $20, $25, $30 an hour, fine, but there are consequences to that specific desire. Yeah. How's your, how's your ham? My ham is just smelling. I'm getting hungry by the minute here. <laughs> too bad you're too far. I would invite you over. Oh, man, I'd be on my way. <laughs> oh, well. And we went for ham this this year because turkey was was a little bit too expensive. So, uh, so we're going for ham this uh, We're just keeping our turkey uh, uh, pleasantries for Christmas. So we've talked a lot with our great friend, Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Attorney, uh, Executive Director of the Police, Canadian Police Association, Senior Policy Advisor to Federal and Ontario Ministers of Public Safety, and Vice Chair of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, which uh, the then Ontario Government Dalton McGuinty disbanded when they have 50 million bucks in the kitty. And I'm still trying to find out where that $50 million went. Probably general revenues, though there's more and more news that has to do with criminal activity in the justice system. And uh, and that includes the NCR verdicts, not criminally responsible. There's a story over the last couple of days about a chronic offender in British Columbia. 14 times he's been released, which means that at least 13 times he's been arrested. And... Uh, He's got a history of um, shoplifting, of random assaults. He has a, a pretty long history and addictions, but he also has mental health issues. And uh, there's a collision. I just heard Scott say something there. There's a there's a there's a collision. I think sometimes between criminal activities, the justice system, mental health issues, and how they try to handle this, how the justice system tries to handle it. What I'm trying to say is that what we're experiencing now, and Scott and I have talked about this, because I've known him for 35 years, and everything you know about the justice system, I learned from Scott Newark. What we're experiencing, Scott, and you've said it, what we're experiencing is, if not an exact repetition of what happened in the early 90s, it's not that far removed. Yeah, there are definitely some similarities, and um, I'm glad you started with the uh, BC case because I think it is reflective of sort of a realization that is going on all across Canada, uh, in all the different provinces, and, and keep in mind that the kinds of jurisdictions um, that we're uh, dealing with uh, it may be the federal government that makes, for example, the criminal law, but it's the provincial governments that, generally speaking, make the uh, medical, including mental health uh, laws, and as well the uh, laws that uh, would 
potentially deal with homelessness. So it's, it is a complicated situation. And that, um, I think, is the reality that more and more governments and public officials and even the people who are themselves the ones who are, you know, the addicts and the homeless and people with mental health are realizing the way that we're doing things right now, however well-intentioned it might have originally been, is just not working. Because it's those three issues. Um, uh, addictions, um, mental health issues, and homelessness that seem to be coming together. And I think the case in British Columbia that you're describing is a real demonstration of how the system, and again, as I say, however well-intentioned, is not working and is actually um, an illustration of why we need to have some substantive reforms, some of which we're beginning to see. You know, British Columbia is going to reverse its policies and not allow for uh, public uh, injection of drugs. Saskatchewan just announced $90 million to help deal with uh, addictions issues and homelessness issues. Other provinces are sort of beginning to realize that we're going to have to do something. And, you know, I, I admit my sort of inclination towards doing this. Uh, I think there are some lessons learned for us from existing legislation. Because don't, you know, we can never forget we live in a charter-compliant world that we could actually draft some legislative and policy and even funding reforms to try to get a handle on this. Because if we don't, it's only going to get worse. Scott, if you've got 14 releases, that means you've been detained at least 13 times. Yeah. That right there, if you need a, if you need a, an example of a system failing, there it is. Yeah, really, no kidding, hey? I mean, seeing as how one of the statutory grounds for denying somebody bail is that there's a, you know, reasonable uh, grounds to believe that the individual of his release is going to commit more offenses. But, you know, we've changed, you know, I've talked about this particular thing for, you know, decades, and even in the story, it's incorrectly reported uh, that, you know, people, it goes back into the uh, mid and late 90s when provincial court, some provincial court judges in Ontario started saying, you know, um, the uh, remand system, which is people who were denied bail, is really unfair because there's no real rehabilitative efforts or focus in that. And so that's not something that's fair, and the, you know, the legislature should deal with that. And the Harris government did, did not do anything. And so the judges themselves started saying, well, okay, we're going to award pretrial credit and extra pretrial credit so that if you're denied uh, bail, we recognize that you're in tougher circumstances. And so, for example, you know, we'll give you two-for-one credit for if you've been denied bail. And then after a couple of months, it got up to three-for-one credit and even reached the point at four-for-one credit. And it spread all across the country. So how do you handle that as a prosecutor? How would a police officer handle that? But let's go to you. You're the prosecutor. You know that's the reality. How do you deal with that? Well, let me tell you, first of all, I experienced it uh, as a prosecutor back in Alberta, uh, back in the uh, the 80s, when, um, you know, we had circumstances of repeat offenders and uh, in some cases high risk, others just sort of like there was, I remember a case where, 
You know, they were all doing uh, break and enters. And, um, you know, we the cases got brought together and they were denied bail. And you know what happened in those days? It was known as dead time. So they pled guilty. Now, with this new approach to things, what we're ending up doing is rewarding repeat offenders. Because you know what? Nobody understands better than the bad guys and their lawyers, okay, who get paid more the longer they're on the file, um, that they will benefit from this. And so as a result of these decisions coming in, I remember checking some years ago on some of the crime stats reporting, the number of people that were actually in remand, in other words, had been denied bail by comparison to people in custody, had just skyrocketed. Because as I said before, nobody figured it out better than the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And what I find really annoying about this, Roy, is that when you look at this closely is, you know, lacking a social life, I do, Section 719, subsection 3 of the criminal code that is the one that's cited for this, it does not make it mandatory that this be done, despite what most people, you know, report or what you read in the, in the media about this stuff. It's not mandatory. And in fact, if you read the uh, legislation even clearly, it says that if somebody is denied bail because of the offense that they were charged with, then the court may award, you know, pretrial credit at the time of sentencing. So, so I got I got to say this to you. Uh, for most people, lawyer talk kind of glazes our eyes over, uh, and, and you do it really well. I mean, you you describe things so that we understand. I certainly understand you after thirty years. But what we're dealing with as well is this catch and release reality, right? And and this is what people are concerned about. They hear about somebody who's been detained, somebody who's been arrested, somebody who's been convicted, and all of a sudden, they're out. And then they're rearrested, and they're retried, and they're reconvicted, and they go back to jail. The recidivism rate used to be 76%. I don't know what it is now. But that is what really, do, really troubles people. I talked with Don Edwards, and you know Don. Yeah, yeah. Buffalo Sabres goaltender, Team Canada goaltender. He and I talked on Friday, so day before yesterday. They're still trying, the Edwards family, are still trying to get George Lovey, who murdered Don's parents, uh, in cold blood, and now is uh, making his way through the parole board. He's got a, he's got a four or five days off. He has an apartment. You know, he's out. He's out, but he wants full parole. And Don is asking, and his wife Tannis are asking, and we were talking about that. Where's he get his money from? Who's paying for this? But this is what really disturbs people. Here's a double murderer, and the parole board is. It appears to be leaning over backwards to accommodate him, and that drives people mad. Yeah, and that reality is something that's not confined to just how the parole system is dealing with things. Look at, remember the Paul Bernardo case? Oh, we're going to reduce the security classification, or the number of offenders who've been released, you know, who are repeat offenders and go on and commit uh, more crimes. Mm -hmm. That's how I got involved, really, in the, the whole public policy world, was a, a case out in Alberta. And it's, um, in fact, one of the most aggravating circumstances, I think, and you're quite correct that it does cross lines of, of the system itself is, um, that it ends up that, you know, we rarely get real independent review of what's happened in something. It's just, you know, the system ends up sort of reviewing itself. 
Yeah. And that really undermines public trust. That's what I was so impressed about when Premier Eby, in the that case that we talked about before, about the guy that was uh, released, uh, he would had been found not criminally responsible, and he was released even though he'd been found a high risk, and he went out and he stabbed three people at the Chinatown event in Vancouver. And Premier Eby said, well, look at it, you know, this, this makes no sense, so I'm going to do an independent review of what actually took place here. Yeah. And I think that's what we need a lot more of. All right. Uh, not criminally responsible. I get the fundamentals of it. I understand why it's there. Is it being is it being treated in a little bit of a fast and loose manner, Scott, or am I missing something? Um, I think it's more of a um, systemic issue about how it works. It is a very, very... Uh, detailed and complicated process that is laid out in the Criminal Code of Canada. It's part 20.1 for anybody who wants to go look it up. And the bottom line is, and I, I did not have, I think I had two cases in my entire time where it, it, it and in those days we used to call it insanity. Um, but um, it's a very complicated process. You've got, as you can imagine, given that, and the criminal code actually requires it, that the disorder that is being claimed as the basis of the defense is got to be something that's recognized professionally. Okay, they have what was called the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that is essentially the playbook of psychiatry. And it's the basis of it is that, uh, first of all, the court's got to be satisfied that you did what you're charged with, but that the defense exists because of mental disorder that was such that you didn't know what you were doing or that you didn't know it was wrong. Well, let me stop okay. you. Let me stop you for a second. Yeah. There have been cases where individuals have drunk themselves into oblivion. They've had so much alcohol that they they're just blotto, and they commit heinous crimes in that condition. And courts have found that they were too drunk to know what they were doing. Well, I've always said nobody forced that stuff down your throat. Yeah, and that issue has actually bounced back and forth uh, over the the last couple of decades about whether or not self-induced intoxication uh, is always going to be a recognizable defense. But this one is different because it's based on sort of professionally recognized mental health issues. Um, I think the real problem with it is, is that, number one, once that determination is made, and again, you're entering the world of the, you know, we know best of uh, the medical profession, and in particular the mental health medical profession, and its um, success is measured in the sense of, oh, you know, we've transformed this guy and everything is wonderful, as opposed to an accurate reflection on what got that person there in the first place. Because whether they're declared to be NCR or not, I think from a societal perspective, we need to always keep in mind uh, they committed the crime. Okay, so that's got to be something that is actually kept in mind, and to a certain extent, yeah. but I don't think enough, it is in the uh, criminal code where there's different categories well, well, of classification. Yeah, well, Scott, and, we, there was a case, I mean, just the other day, the woman who pushed uh, uh, an individual under yeah. under the subway tracks in Toronto was found to be NCR, right? Uh, it's, 
And assuming, I don't know the details of the case, but assuming even that there was evidence that justified that, I think the major problem with this system is what happens next. Yeah. Because it goes Fair into enough. this bureaucratic process, okay, and the individual gets to have their medical status renewed every year. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.